Okay, this morning, the topic of our class, people would ask me what uh, what's the topic of the classes for this morning, and really that, I think we could call them the heavenlies. Well, it sure did. Help us out, Andrew. Thank you. And our our classes this morning will kind of go over this. The first class, we're going to look at a comparison of the heavenlies in Ephesians as, as it is with the book of Joshua or some major events in Joshua. And in our second class, we'll consider take consideration of the new heavens and the new earth, which are revealed to us in the Apocalypse, chapter 21. Uh, and then we'll compare that with the third heaven, which uh, is referenced in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Our third class will take in consideration of the, the heavens that are mentioned in 2 Peter chapter 3. And then our last class will somewhat be a summary and maybe just really some thoughts from Robbie Bennett. I don't know better how to say it, but I don't know if there'll really be a summary of the first three, but some, some things that I want to bring to your attention. So for the courses, or for all the three classes we have, my bibliography contains basically the scriptures, of course. We'll have several quotations from Brother Thomas out of Eureka and the last days of Judah's Commonwealth. I relied heavily upon uh, the Expositor series and the book of the one on Revelation, James to Jude, and also Genesis. And then we'll have some references to uh, Josephus as well in one of our classes. So to begin, we first consider a unique parallel which can be found between the book of Joshua and the letter to the Ephesians. The book of Joshua introduces us to Israel as they begin a new phase in their national existence by entering into the Promised Land. Of course, we know in type that great event represented the bringing in of a heavenly people, as we might call them, into their inheritance in preparation for the establishment of the kingdom in its glory, which would eventually come to them under the days of David and Solomon. The death of Moses and the leadership which was invested in Joshua typed the new relationship of the believer in Christ who has become dead to the law and its curse and alive to the newness of life in his Savior. We know as one goes through the waters of baptism, he then is introduced into a higher status. And this status is really described as being in Christ. We understand that. When one passes through the waters of baptism, they become one in Christ. Much the same way that the nation was introduced into a higher status in the purpose of God when they were typically baptized through the waters of the Jordan under the leadership and by the direction of Joshua. This higher status that we believers take on upon ourselves is described to us in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. And within this letter of Ephesians, Paul sets out the ideal for the ecclesia in every age. It is to be applied by every individual that takes on or is considering to take on the name of Christ. Ephesians describes for us the new relationship of baptized believers and bears this out in similar in, in stages which are similar 
to Joshua's conquest of the land. Believers are described as being in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, a term which defines a position or a state of life that has been obediently adopted by those that take on Christ as their Lord and their mediator. So let's open our Bibles and take in consideration of the first two references, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians 1 3 reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings and heavenly places in Christ. Now, some of you may have some marginal renderings in your Bible that shows for the word heavenly places that would rather be better read in the heavenlies. The word places is in italics, and many, and which means it was added during transcription. So rather you could read, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies, in Christ. Let's also turn to chapter 2 and read verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Or rather, and hath made us sit together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Now these verses in no way are teaching the doctrine of heaven going as may be properly taught in Christendom today. Rather, these verses define the status of one in their probationary walk awaiting the kingdom of God once they have taken on the name of Christ through the waters of baptism. And we can easily see that this is a fact when comparing similar language written by Paul when he wrote to the Colossians. So let's look over at Colossians chapter 1. Actually, Colossians 3, verse 1. I'm sorry. Colossians 3, verse 1. If ye, the, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Paul describes those that have embraced the truth as risen with Christ. These have been elevated, as you might say, from the mere natural state of thinking and living to a spiritual state as found in the Lord. They then occupy positions of privilege in Him. And because the world hated Christ and continues to hate the truth, the the adherents are described as being in conflict with the heavenlies in the Gentile realm. In two places, Paul uses the same word heavenly to describe something other than those in Christ. And the first occasion of this use is in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. So when you're going through the book of Ephesians, you can't say every application of the heavenlies is an application to those in a spiritual state in Christ. 
So let's look at uh, chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, to create all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the ecclesia the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So unlike the warfare under the direction of Joshua, this is a conflict of doctrine and standards. Though ultimately at the Lord's coming, we know that it becomes a physical contact, physical conflict. Meantime, there is a fight of faith to be engaged by all believers. They are called upon to vigorously set forth the truth against the machinations and teachings of the rulers of the present age. We read where Paul declares in Ephesians 6.12, look at this, how how he exhorts us to stand up against these situations. Ephesians 6.12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Now this last phrase, high places, is really the same Greek word that's being used previously here in Ephesians for the word heavenlies. Okay, So if you look at the word heavenlies, it's really from a... I should have put it on the overhead, I failed to do it. But it's just a Greek word... Eporanios, which basically means a heaven or a heavenly region, it can mean a temple or a sanctuary, and it has basically heavenly origins or something with heavenly natures. Okay. So the epistle depicts the form of warfare which is engaged in by those in Christ, or you might say the antitypical Joshua, against the world without. The use applies to those in the heavenlies in Christ, and they must battle against those in the places of authority that are described as being in possession of the heavenlies of the Gentiles. And to successfully wage that warfare, we know then that the saint must be properly equipped with the armor of God, as he well defines for us in chapter 6. So if you look at chapter 6, verse 13 through 18, we see how we can provide ourselves with the proper equipment to fight or wage this warfare with the Gentile heavenlies. It says, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, this is verse 13 of chapter 6, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. So the idea of those in Christ standing apart from those in the world in a different status in the eyes of Yahweh 
is really something that's expressed, expressed more than just by Paul. We see it also expressed by John in the book of Revelation, chapter 13, verse 6. In chapter 13, verse 6, we see this reference where it says, And he opened his mouth and blasphemed against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So we ask, who are those that dwell in heaven? In Eureka, Brother Thomas comments upon the heavenlies as used by Paul to the Ephesians and he makes a comment and relates it to this verse as well in Revelation 13. He says this, pay close, you know, read, read long, it's here on the overhead now. Christ and the saints are not only the name and the tabernacle of the deity, but they are also those who dwell in the heaven. The phrase, in the heaven, is apocalyptically equivalent to in the heavenlies in Christ. Paul tells the saints in Ephesus that he with them were blessed with all spiritual blessings in these heavenlies in which they and Christ were regarded as sitting together. This being together is a spiritual state because Christ at that time of the letter to the Ephesians was at the right hand of God and the members of the Ephesian ecclesia were walking in their probation upon the earth. A heavenly is a constituted heavenly or celestial state. It may be divinely constituted or constituted by human authority. So I think those the last sentence is a very important one. A heavenly status, that is, is constituted as a heavenly state. It may be divinely constituted or constituted by human authority. He goes on to say, we have these two kinds of heavenlies in Paul's letter to the saints in Ephesus. First, we have just discussed in Ephesians 1, 20, and 2, 6, where those in the heavenlies are constituted such by their participation in the gospel, by their death through baptism into the name of Christ. Notice how we become in these heavenlies, brethren, by adherence to the gospel message by death through baptism into the name of Christ. In chapter 6.12, he alludes to the heavenlies constituted by a human authority, that is the Gentile realm. The common version styles them high places, but Paul uses the same word to indicate them as that is rendered heavenly places as is compared to chapters 1.3, verse 20, and also chapter 2, verse 6. It is, however, to be remembered that Paul so expresses himself as not to be misunderstood by the enlightened. He defines the heavenlies in which they sit together with Christ as being in Christ. But he omits the phrase in Christ when he speaks of the heavenlies in which the spirituals of wickedness are found. Hence, the two kinds of celestial states are characterized by being in Christ or not in Christ, which is equivalent to being out of Christ, or outside, not included in the things of which the manifestation of the deity in the flesh 
is the great and glorious center. But the heavenlies in Christ are not places, brethren, but states. Found at the foundation on which is laid in Jesus Christ, deity manifested in the flesh. So that's from Eureka, Volume 4. Pretty simple, I thought. I think he, he, he summarized it very well for us. And I would encourage you to go back to your own home, pull out your Volume 4, look around page 317, and reread it a couple of times. But it helps us quite, you know, understand what's meant by being in the heavenlies. You know, Sister Candy was teasing me this morning, you know, about what I was going to speak on. I told her the heavenlies, and so she said, "Well, what are you going to do? You going to teach that, you know, we're, we're in heaven on earth, you know, right now?" I mean, I said, "Well, of course not." But you know, if you comprehend the point that Paul was bringing to the brethren. In a, in a small way, that has some truth to it. You know, we we reside in heavenly places as being in Christ. It's a status, not a place. So, when considering the occurrences of the word heavenlies in the epistle to the Ephesians, it's quite interesting that the word is used in five occasions. These five times can be correlated to five stages in the work of Joshua as he labored to establish the nation of Israel in the land at, at the expense of the heavenlies or the rulers which were then in possession of that territory, the land of Canaan. The five stages of Joshua's work also uh, can be compared to the stages of the present day believer. So we think about that. So as we go through these, we think about how Joshua entered the land, but these can really apply to our probationary walk or how we you know go from the point of you know in Adam to in Christ and eventually into Yahweh's kingdom. So here we see the stages defined. In Ephesians 1 3 is the first stage where it talks about the revelation of how acceptance of the gospel in Christ brings one into a special status that is bringing one into the heavenlies. The second stage which is found in Ephesians 1 20 we see that a new way will, shall be opened up by a victorious leader. In Ephesians 2.6, we see that divine grace is manifested to the people through faith. The fourth stage is those in the heavenlies called upon to witness against those Gentiles who are in occupation of the heavenlies of this age. And in chapter 6.12, the fifth stage, we see the heavenlies as a present scene of conflict. So you may want to open your Bible back up and look at Ephesians 1. Well, first, before we do that, let's go to the Deuteronomy reference. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to read verses 22 through 23. It says, And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and sore, upon Egypt and upon Pharaoh and upon all his household before before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence that he 
might bring us in to give us the land which he swore unto our fathers. But I think we can compare this to how we are revealed or how an acceptance of the gospel in Christ brings one into a special status into the heavenlies. We compare this with what we read back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. You know, when the verse to compare really is verse 23 where it says, And He brought us out from thence, that He might bring us in and give us the land. In Ephesians 1, 3, verses 3, verses 3 through 5, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly in the heavenlies in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be a, we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure. Of his will. Within these verses, brethren, we see that Israel of God, that is either those that have been taken out of Egypt physically, as with the children of Israel, or those Gentiles in the flesh, or the natural Jew, which have been taken out of Egypt spiritually. This Israel of God is shown the prospects of a predestined inheritance reserved for a chosen people. And that's what Yahweh had. You know, he had reserved this special privileged position for these children. And what's interesting is, if you really look at the history of Israel, you know, the first those that were first taken out of Egypt refused it. Okay, remember they refused to go into the land. And you had ten spies that went out to look at the land, and only two came back with a favorable. Excuse me, twelve. 12, I'm sorry, I was thinking number 10. But 12 go out and 10 return with unfavorable reports. The men were too big. The nations were too mighty. But this was something that Yahweh had promised them to give them as their inheritance. You know, we think about that sometimes. You know, these were spiritual leaders, as you might say, of that age. So it really goes to show that when if we compare it to our own age, we have to try the spirits, we have to study and understand the scriptures on our own merits. We can't always rely that the spiritual leaders that have been either elected to be placed over us in our ecclesias or over the entire body and whatever whatever order they may work, they have the flesh nature just as you and I do. You have to make sure that you compare the things they teach you are scripturally sound. And these men caused not only themselves to suffer and lose their life, but their families as well. Except for Joshua and Caleb. The verse in Ephesians shows precisely how the acceptance of the gospel in Christ brings one into a relationship to the spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ. The words of Paul answer to the work of Joshua in leading the people across the Jordan to a new status in the land, just as those that are obedient to the gospel call enjoy a new status in the eyes of Yahweh. 
So think about that. You know, think about when one takes that position of being in Christ, they're in a different position in the eyes of Yahweh. And privileges are now given to them which are not privileges to those out of Christ, as you might say. So keep that in the back of your mind. We'll probably revisit that thought a little later. The second stage, we see that to be a new way opened up by a victorious leader. This new way was typically established by Joshua and can be summarized in Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. And I mean, hopefully everyone noticed this morning in, in Brother Steve's reading of Psalm 118 that every time the word salvation came up, he read Yeshua. You know, which was really, you know, that's the name of Christ. So when we see, every time we read in the book of Joshua, we should be thinking about how this man typified our Redeemer, the Son of Yahweh, you know, Yeshua, Jesus Christ. Joshua 1, we'll read verses 1 through 9. Now after the death of Moses, the servant of Yahweh, it came to pass that Yahweh spake unto Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' minister, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, into the land which I I do give them, even to the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I have said unto Moses. From the wilderness... And this Lebanon, even unto the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, and unto the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. Therefore shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with thee. I will not fail thee, nor forsake thee. Be strong and of good courage. For unto this people shalt thou divide for an inheritance the land, which I swear unto their fathers to give them. Only thou be strong and very courageous, that thou mayest observe to do according to all the law, which Moses my servant commanded thee. Turn not from it to the right hand or to the left, that thou mayest prosper whithersoever thou goest. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Have I not commanded thee? Be strong and of good courage. Be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed. For Yahweh thy Elohim is with thee whithersoever thou goest. If you think about it, brethren, that's a, a set of scriptures could be easily read to a newly immersed person in Christ. And it would have great application. Paul, in the second use of the word heavenlies, describes to us the victory of Christ over sin and death, which ensured, ensured the successful conquest of all those in Him as long as they follow his lead and follow the commandments that they were given by Moses. So look at Ephesians 1, verses 18 through 21. 
Ephesians 1, 18-21 we read, the eyes, of all, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of His calling, and what the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of His power to usward, who believe, according to the working of His mighty power, which He wrought in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and set Him in His own right hand in the heavenlies far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in that which is to come. So we notice in verse 18 you know, that the hope of our calling includes the riches of the glory of His inheritance, you know, which was exactly what was explained to those brethren that came over under Joshua into the Promised Land. The third stage, divine grace manifested to the people through faith. We'll not reread it, but remember what we just read in Joshua 1, 1 through 1-9. When the people were encouraged to go to possess that land. And we read later how Joshua even questioned the children in chapter 8 verse 3. Look at that. Joshua 18, verse 3. And we think, now how could the people who had you know, endured 40 years of wilderness wanderings because, remember, these that inherited the land were those that had to have been of the age below 20 when they came out of the land of Egypt. So these, you know, so these individuals would have been from the age of 59 and below. There were, there were no, you know, no one above the age of 59-60 entered into the land except for two and their families, which have been Joshua and Caleb. Okay? So, you know, they had seen many of them, and been taught by their parents of the wondrous, the wonderful miracles being brought out of Egypt, the Egyptians being destroyed in the Red Sea, you know, the hand of God providing them manna and water and quail through all their wanderings in the wilderness. And now they have just witnessed to be allowed to come across the Jordan River, seeing the water stand up as a heap, Come across dry land again, you know. So they and they had the, the before this they had the the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke to provide them safety and direction as they wandered. So they had many things that were in their daily lives, and they, their parents saw or they physically saw as as young people what the power and might of Yahweh's hand was. But here, what do we, what do we read? Chapter 18, verse 30. And Joshua said unto the children of Israel, How long are ye slack to go to possess the land which Yahweh your Elohim, your fathers, hath given you? How long are ye slack to go and to possess the land? You know, you think, as you know, brethren in Christ, sometimes how, how often do we allow this slackness to take over our own lives? You know, this attitude... Even though we see all the beauty 
that is provided and revealed in the Scriptures. Ephesians 2, let's compare this to Ephesians 2, verses 5 through 8. read here, even when we were dead in sins, have quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God." Here we are revealed that the grace brought to light by Christ's victory has not only elevated those exercised by it, but it guarantees their future inheritance. But it only guarantees it if faith continues to motivate them. Remember the words of Joshua trying to encourage the children of Israel to remain faithful, to go and inherit the land which was promised to them. This is the same as the encouraging words of Paul here in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 7, that we may be shown this grace in the ages to come. Who shall do this? Those that continue in faith that are in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Paul also expressed this same idea in Colossians chapter 3. Let's go back there. We didn't read all this, but you know, it's... We see that it's a gift that is provided, but there is a prerequisite for those to receive this gift. And that gift is faith. And we know that that word faith is not just a belief. It's not just an understanding. But it's actually a verb, and it requires action. Colossians... I've got to find this one. I didn't print this one. So I apologize. This time I'll be reading from a New King James on this one. Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. If ye then, if then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. For ye died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience, in which you also once walked when you lived with them. But now you must also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all and in all. And that, brethren, should motivate us. So here, Paul encourages us to no longer to walk 
in unrighteousness. Put to death the earthly members within us, that being fornication, uncleanness, passion, and evil desire. And what are we taught to do or encouraged to do? Seek those things which are above. Verse 1. Seek those things which are above. The things in the heavenlies. The fourth stage. Those in the heavenlies are called upon to witness against the Gentiles who occupy the heavenlies of this age or this world. Let's read verse chapter 3, verses 8 through 10 of Ephesians. Ephesians 3, verses 8 through 10. Unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the ecclesia the manifold wisdom of God. In this scripture, Paul calls upon those who are in the heavenlies in Christ to witness against those Gentiles in occupation of the heavenlies of the world by setting before them the unsearchable riches of Christ so as to make all men see what is the fellowship of the secret in Him. And what is this aspect of being in Christ? That's what we are to make illuminate to those around us. Joshua also had this ambition. Let's look at Joshua chapter 4, verses 21 through 24. Joshua 4, 21 through 24. And he spake unto the children of Israel, saying, When your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean these stones? Then you shall let your children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For Yahweh, your God, dried up the waters of Jordan from from before you until you were passed over, as Yahweh your Elohim did, to the Red Sea, which he dried up from before us until we were gone over that all the people of the earth might know the hand of Yahweh, that it is mighty, and that you might fear Yahweh, your God, forever. So in this account, we have Joshua reminding the Israelites that the miraculous exodus of Israel from Egypt would stand as a witness to the people of the earth, or those principalities and powers that sit in the heavenlies, and that they should understand the might and majesty of Yahweh's hand. So you think about this, you know, that's you know, we were to try to do our best to teach those around us the might and majesty of Yahweh. And if you think about um, you know, looking as you read through the Old Testament, see how many times the references are made to the bringing out of the children and the might that it took to bring this host of people out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. It's referenced many, many times. So it stands as a witness. And the people of the nations around Israel knew about it. 
They had heard about this mighty nation, and it put fear in their hearts. And yet Israel failed to use that as their advantage. So we should use this as a means to help teach those around us. But then we project ourselves into the kingdom. You know, Really, this is a projection of what Yahweh expects Christ and the saints to do in the kingdom age. We are to teach those nations, and they will look back upon the might of the salvation that Israel was afforded, say, with the Godian invasion, and at the you know, return of Christ, they will see those events as things which exclaim the majesty that God has for those who love Him and the hand that He extends out to them. So really this is a type of something to come in the kingdom age. The fifth stage. The heavenlies as a present scene of conflict. Let's look at Joshua 24 while we're there. Joshua 24, verse 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve Yahweh, choose you this day whom ye will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in which in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. This is a great this is a great comparison with the final use of the word heavenlies in the epistle of the Ephesians. So let's go to chapter six. Of Ephesians, chapter six, verse twelve, and here Paul shows that the heavenlies, or this aspect of the heavenlies, is a present scene of conflict. A present scene of conflict. In Ephesians six twelve, we read, "For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness." and high places. Paul concludes by urging his readers to therefore take into you the whole armor of God that they may then be successful in this battle or this warfare. We know that Joshua did the same because after he had battled and won and made it possible for every man, every tribe, every family to attain into their individual inheritance, he concluded by urging them to be steadfast in serving Yahweh. This he encouraged Israel to do up to the time of his death, which we see here recorded. You know, I really would recommend you read all the way down through 28, just of that Joshua 24. But so too does Paul, after his fifth use of the term heavenlies, he encourages the believer to continue in the fight, placing on themselves the armor of God. And if we were to keep our Bibles open to chapter 6, you could see this. He encourages us to keep on, keep, keep on us the armor of God, the girdle of truth about our waist. He encourages us to bear the breastplate of righteousness. He encourages us to keep our feet in the way of the gospel of peace. We are to use our faith as our shield. We are to have upon our heads the helmet of salvation. And we see that the Word of God acts as our sword to defend and protect us against the evils of this age. 
So brethren, we can really look at this Joshua aspect as type and Jesus the anti-type. Paul, Paul plainly reveals that it can be true. We should grasp hold of this precious position of residing in the heavenlies in Christ and never let the works of those that rule in the spiritual host of wickedness, that is, the other heavenlies, we should never allow them to sway us from the simplicity that can be found in the gospel as it is in Jesus. We must keep this status as we now reside in the heavenlies in Christ. We should keep it as a treasured possession, a status a privilege that is more valuable than any earthly possession that we could ever obtain. So basically we should take for our own motto the words that Joshua 20, 20, that were delivered by Joshua in verse 15. Choose you this day whom you will serve. The Father, as the Father is from the other side of the flood, you know, we think about that. Are you going to serve those gods of your fathers? You know, the gods that Abraham or the, the gods that Abraham's forefathers followed, the Babylonian gods, which are still being taught all around us and is now creeping into our own body. But rather you should have this. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. 